Bass Edge Radio. Commence broadcast in three, two, one. You're listening to The Edge. Everything bass fishing coming to you nationwide from the Bass Edge Studios. What's up, Bass Edge Nation? This is no April Fool's joke. This is the next episode of Bass Edge Radio. Welcome to it, y'all. It's April. Lots of stuff going on. Fishing is in full force, man. If there is a time of year that you need to be out on the water, this is that time of year. March, April, May, June. It doesn't get any better than this. So we're excited for this episode of Bass Edge. Aaron, what do you got for us, buddy? Man, like you said, Kurt, the uh, red buds are blooming. The trees are going crazy crazy turkeys are gobbling and speaking of which you know what you need if you're a turkey hunter or if you're a bass fisherman you got to have a mega wear keel guard you pull up on the bank and you're chasing those turkeys or if you're out there chasing bass you got to ask for it by name to protect your boat there's only one mega wear keel guard be sure to check out their entire lineup including the skeg guard the flex step and of course the first do-it-yourself keel protector mega wear keel guard be sure Check them out, keelguard.com. Kurt, as you said, it's that time of year. I'm assuming that uh, you've been probably a little bit busy guiding on Amistad. I have done some guiding. I took some time out from all the other tasking that I try to, you know, keep this uh, crazy wheel a spinning and um, got back from Lanier, dove right back into uh, Hayabusa and took a few days this past week and set up some guiding trips that were great. I was able to test some new hooks, but more importantly, get out there and really attack some Amistad bass for several days. And uh, man, it, fishing's been good down here. Um, we catching a lot of fish. These fish down here right now in this early part of April are still on the spawn. You know, we had a super cold winter, so the spawn kind of delayed a little bit, really didn't get started until the first week of March, you know, kind of in that full force time frame. And that's kind of what's been playing. I, I got to throw out a couple little tips that I've been seeing on the lake that might help, you know, some of our Bass Edge listeners catch a few more fish. And when you're in this time of year, you know, where these fish are, are kind of grouped up in little pockets. I think that's what really a lot of fish do. When you find a spawning bass, Aaron, you're going to find many more fish in that general area, whether it's the right bottom contour, they like hanging out with their buddies, it just happens to be the right temp in that pocket, whatever the reason is, not totally sure, but I'm sure many of those are a factor, and slow down. If you get a bite, slow down. There's often several other fish in the area. And I've seen this at the lake here the last week or so. And that is, you know, I'll get a bite. And at first I was getting a bite and just kind of moving along, moving along, moving along, looking for that next bite. Then I get another bite and kind of move along, move along. Then I really started slowing down with my clients. And after I was out there a day or two and then really slowed down for the next three or four days, it was really good fishing because I got my foot off the trolling mode. That was the big key. I took, once we got a bite, got that foot off the trolling motor, we would start catching several fish in an area and not always the right size to begin with. We'd be catching a lot of those buck bass, you know, off beds. And of course, the water's really clear down here at Amistad. So our fish are spawning, you know, between eight and 15 feet. But this applies anywhere, whether it's two to three feet, um, you're up in a dirty water situation or a slight stain situation, and you're fishing in two to three, maybe three to five feet of water. You get that 
that bite and you start catching fish, maybe some of them not the right size, the females are there. They're around. Maybe they're back off just a touch, maybe another foot or two deeper. But if you stay slow, fish the area very thoroughly, you're going to start catching some bigger fish. And that's what happened these last couple of days here at Amistad. We ended up catching some seven pounder, seven and a half pounder, seven and a quarter, seven, you know, a 613. And it just went on and on because we slowed down. So make that a tip for your fishing this spring. And without further ado, we're going to move right into our protecttheharvest.com tackle tip. This episode's protecttheharvest.com tackle tip with Billy McDonald. Hey guys, two products I never get in the boat without is our ethanol safeguard and the Lucas Oil Real Oil. I'll go to the ethanol treatment at first. Every time you fill up with gas, put the ethanol treatment in. The pump says a minimum of 10%, and it says minimum, so that's the bare minimum that's got ethanol in it. Put that in perspective, just think, if you've got a 50-gallon tank on your boat, when you fill your boat up, which is not supposed to have ethanol in it, that's equivalent to putting a five-gallon bucket similar to water in your boat. So you want to make sure you take care of that with the ethanol treatment. The other thing is Lucas Real Oil. You never know when you get out there, you get one of them real squealing really bad. It's real simple. It's got a needle applicator. You pop side cover off, put a drop on the bearings, and all that goes away. You start out casting your partner, and everything's good. So those are two products you never leave home without is the ethanol safeguard and the Lucas Oil Real Oil. those are outstanding tips for those Lucas Oil products. Thanks so much. That'll conclude this protecttheharvest.com tackle tip. First by land and now by sea. For years, Lucas Oil has been a staple in high-performance vehicles on both the road and track. Now, from the makers of Lucas Oil comes Lucas Marine products, specifically engineered for marine applications. Protect and lubricate your marine inboard, outboard, or high-performance boat with Lucas Marine Engine Oil or Lucas Synthetic based oil. Learn more about the complete line of Lucas Oil and Marine products. Visit lucasoil.com. Nitro Performance Bass Boats. Get pro-level performance with the Nitro Z18, the official boat of Major League Fishing. The Z18, with its nimble handling and versatility, sports many of the features in the larger boats in the line, like a Guardian Livewell, a heavily insulated cooler, dual 8-foot rod storage, and our smooth and fast NVT hull. Every Nitro boat is laid out to do one thing very well, catch fish. Enormous front decks up to 45 square feet on the Z21 allow maximum mobility when battling unruly bass and feature low-profile gunnels for ease of skipping, pitching, flipping, or landing fish. Nitro Performance Bass Boats, pure fishing machines. Aaron, uh, I rambled right through our opening segment, but I know that you've been able to hit the water pretty hard here over the last couple weeks, and i uh, love to hear some experiences that you've seen that can help us all catch some more fish. Yeah, I uh, was able to get out a couple weeks ago for the uh, Central Pro Elite Web Outdoors event, um, Lake of the Ozarks, and you know, certainly that lake was voted uh, top 10 in the country. The week prior to us getting there was really looking forward to it. They were wrecking big stringers, of course. We're not allowed 
to throw the A rig. So a lot of those big stringers were coming on that, but there was still a lot of fish being caught on big spinner baits, you know, shallow. The fish seemed to really be moving up. Well, of course, as they always say, should have been here last week because the temperature <laughs> temperature plummeted. So I'll kind of set the stage. Massive cold front that came through. Matter of fact, on the final day of takeoff, the temperature was 32 degrees and misting rain. The lake level was the lowest that I've seen it. And I've fished that lake for 22, 23 years. Lowest I've wow. seen it in a very, very long time. So muddy water. Water temperature was running between 43 to 49 degrees. Uh, chilly. Yeah, very chilly. So I practiced for four days and I had two keepers and there was a group of us that kind of traveled together. I don't know that I've ever fished that lake for four days and only caught two keepers. Yeah, that's some tough fishing. I've been on Lake of the Ozarks one time and it seems to have a pretty high population of fish, hence the uh, top 10 rating in the country. So um, maybe that cold snap really shot them back? Yeah, I mean, you know, so what I did was the, the normal stuff, the stick bait, obviously jerk baits are, are extremely popular. Of course, the jig was getting into the water temperature had been kind of at that 50, 53 degree range uh, the week prior. So that's where the spinner bait really started coming into play. But uh, uh, yeah, not so much during practice. So essentially, I'll kind of speed up the process. And you and I sitting on this end of the mic, we get to learn a lot, right? So we also get to kind of test how good of students we are from all of the many great guests that we have on here. And, you know, I was just feeling uneasy in the first day of the tournament. Normally, I'm an anal guy, right? And I, I like uh, listing all my spots, where I'm going to be, how I want to do it in my head and kind of have my sure. offensive, defensive coordination playbook. But come the first day, I made the decision right before we buzzed out of the buoys that, uh, you know what, I'm not going to go fish anything that I did in practice. It didn't work. I talked with Dr. J. McNamara a little bit that week prior, but nice. uh, Dr. I J. with the uh, book, The Psychology of Exceptional Fishing. All Bass Edge Nation should remember Jay. We've talked to him many times here on the show. That's right. He, you know, I call him my uh, fishing guru or shaman. He and I are certainly good friends and stay in touch with him. But just bounce some thoughts and ideas uh, of a lot of what he wrote in his book. And, and that's really why I abandoned my entire practice because it wasn't working. So why go there and expect different results? A definition of insanity. Picked up a new bait. So first day, picked up a jig went to all new spots was able to put four in the boat was kind of sitting you know down further in the field because a lot of guys did do well uh, as far as weight wise but then we had the massive cold front came in and as you know kurt that's when things start messing with your head right i'm sure you've been in that sure. situation oh yeah many times so, you know, when the temperature dropped, I think it was hard for me not to think that the fish wouldn't pull out and suspend. But once again, I said, all right, I'm going to fish an entirely different body of water again today. This time, instead of going to the jig, I knew I had to make a big difference. So I put on a, a square bill, went straight to the backs at 730, had the first keeper. And it was downhill from there, was able to call and made a, a huge jump way up the leaderboard. But most importantly, it kind of really allowed my confidence to back up of what so many times and also what Jay covers, Dr. Jay covers in his book, that when things aren't working, you've got to be able to break away and try new things. That's interesting, Aaron. Tell me your transition from the jig fishing. How were you actually fishing the jig and then made the decision to, you know, go into the backs and, and work the square bill, which ultimately really helped you move up that leaderboard? Well, because we took off at that time, you know, we were really taking off almost in the pitch black dark. Well, while we were sitting there in the marina getting ready to take off inside the buoys, 
the turkey started gobbling. I mean, it's 33 degrees out, right? And also, I'm starting to think, you know, given the time of year, where the water temperature was, the moon phases, the red buds and dogwoods are blooming, the bass have an internal clock. And regardless of what we think or what we try and force them to do, the fish have to move up at some point in time. And with me having five days on the water before that final day, I didn't really catch anything shallow. And the jig fish, they were on the flatter stuff. I was throwing just the, it's a little round ball, jewel finesse jig with a critter crawl type trailer. I just felt that I could cover a lot more water with that square bill. And for those active fish, I could get a reaction bite and uh, be able to hopefully put five good fish in the boat and it really paid off so that was the hunch awesome well it's cool how you transition from the jig bite which was on that flatty type stuff and you were fishing slow and then were able to just pick up a new bait kind of like you said create a, a new environment create a new situation and then you know just see if it pays off and you got that bite early in the morning and then kind of rode it it sounds like into that success so uh it's a great tip excellent experience for all bass edge nation to uh kind of take into consideration the next time they're out in the water keeping that open mind like aaron did bringing you that success in catching bass so we are going to keep an open mind here moving forward as we have the most recent FLW Tour champion Bradley Hallman on the line waiting for this Lucas Oil Angler Spotlight. This is Bassmaster Elite Series Pro Jason Williamson. This is BASS Elite Series Britt Byers. I am Pro Angler Chad Pipkins. I am Nitro Mercury Pro Josh Bertrand. Enjoying another episode of Bass Edge Radio. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. KeelGuard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. KeelGuard keel protectors. This episode's featured angler is not only my roommate on tour, but recently became only the 11th angler in FLW history to win multiple tour events. He did it in an unconventional fashion that I believe hasn't been seen for some time. We're going to break it down today, as well as early season spinnerbait fishing. Back to the show for the second time in three years, FLW Tour professional angler, Bradley Hallman. Thanks for joining us again, Brad. Yeah, thanks, Kurt. Thanks for having me. Well, Brad, first off, congratulations on your win at Lake Lanier in the most recent FLW Tour event. You're one of 11 anglers that have won two. You fished the national tour for six years, and after a break, you have won three major events in four years. Where do you contribute the change in results for you? I don't really know. I mean, I can't put my finger on this one thing that there's an answer to that question. I think for me personally, it's probably a little bit of maturity in my fishing, but, you know, a lot of anglers don't need that at a younger age but apparently for whatever reason you know just aging a little bit a little maturity and calming down with some decisions and things seem to have helped me quite a bit well brad it's been well documented how you won the event at lake lanier want to dive in a little bit deeper on decisions you make to win from wire to wire you go from spots on points meaning spotted bass of course for those that weren't able to see the event but spotted bass on points spotted bass in marinas spotted bass on docks and then large 
mouth in the river on a spinnerbait. I've been around the sport for a really long time. I can't really ever pinpoint an angler putting together really almost a totally different puzzle every day to win an event. Not only that, but convincingly wire to wire. How did you adjust so gracefully throughout the event? I mean, there's got to be a mental situation that's very difficult to do that. When we catch fish, we want to tend to go back and do the same thing over to try and repeat the success that we had. But you were able to, you know, adjust not only daily, but really quickly every day. If you could tell the listeners really what put yourself in that position and how you were able to put together almost a perfect event. I think that a lot of it in the beginning was just bites that I got in practice. I know you and I talked about it a little bit, you know, obviously being roommates. A lot of the key things that happened throughout the week where a lot of times we're just kind of jumping into things with ideas like saying, you know, this looks really good or that looks really good. And we try it on a whim and it doesn't work. Some of the things that happened for me were actually bite related. So I had bites that kind of clued me to that. I was fortunate enough to get the bites because obviously we go do things sometimes and they can be somewhat close to the deal and we do not get the clues or the keys or the signs to continue to do it. But obviously the points, um, day one of the tournament, that was a deal that I would say half the field, if not more, were on. We all realized that there were lots of fish out on those points early in practice and, and quality fish. We had talked about as a group that I kind of told my roommates that, you know, with the weather changing and stuff, that we might be able to pick up some of those fish on uh, reaction-style baits once the tournament started because it was better slick conditions and sunny and stuff during practice, and we were doing a lot of dragging to get those bites and generate bites out on some of those points. And that was kind of where my first day fell in. We got the wind and that continued, and we did get some reaction bites out there. The marinas, the outside walls, same thing there in practice. I've had a couple of bites. But didn't hear that as dialed in. Wasn't real sure. What I was thinking was a very high potential was the quality of fish that was on that thing. Because I had only caught two fish and seen three, but the three that I had seen, the smallest was three and a half pounds. So I felt like there was the potential there to get a good bite. I didn't know the amount of bites I could get off of them. And I wasn't real sure of the bait. What I was pretty sure of is the bait that I was using in practice, which was a jerk bait, was very conditional, meaning I had to have a lot of things line up, wind being the number one uno, with the sun and, and different things to position those fish. And that kind of progressed throughout the tournament with some bites that I had gotten off the points on a swim bait from day one, allowed me to kind of move that swim bait over to the marina walls on day two. After I had tried the points in the morning, then they didn't work. I, I kind of felt that way after day one when I, when I caught those off the points, I continued to run some more points, and I was very unsuccessful, and I knew from practice that it was going to be conditional and it wasn't going to be everyone, and they were getting a lot of pressure. The marinas were not as far as that outside seawall. I think I saw one other boat in the tournament actually fishing an outside seawall, so I knew that that bite was potential to do something going into day two because day one I stopped on one about one o'clock and made a couple of casts and caught one of my biggest fish, and I think that was about the only fish that I caught off and ran the first day, but I had such a big bag that I didn't fish anymore. So day two starts, and, and I start on the points, don't catch them, and you move to the marinas. Now, see, I've been a bit there in practice, and I've had one good out there in the tournament, so I've got a lot of confidence going into that. While I'm fishing the walls on day two, I noticed that there's a lot of boats going in and out of the marinas because I'm sitting there fishing them. And I thought then they're catching them back there behind those stalls. In practice, I actually saw some bedding fish earlier in practice back behind the marina all the way against the wall. These were very quality fish, spotted bass and largemouth. So I knew that they were already using that area. Day three comes, points don't work. 
it's uh, sunny, but there's no wind whatsoever. It's slick calm. I'm already on the marina walls. It was a very easy adjustment to move into the inside of the marina because it was just a matter of pulling up the trolling motor and idling 100 yards and then start kind of breaking that apart. And I really started shallower, and they really weren't there, and I kind of moved up, and they seemed to kind of be in that 20-foot range. But I started getting bites. Um, it's something I'm very comfortable with, dog fishing, marina fishing. It's something that I generally use jigs for. Uh, in the pre-spot, but this like being a spotted bass lake and clear and as pressured as it had been by day three from a 184-boat field of FLW. The shaky head and the, the mid rig seemed to be a little better, you know, higher bite ratio, and so I stuck with the lighter lines and spin rods. But like I say, that was an easy adjustment, and it wasn't something that, you know, in past hindsight where I had just made a decision, well, I'm going to move in here, it's going to work. I actually had some clues that this may work. Because, one, just historically, it's some of the things that I have done fishing. Two, I had seen fish back there. Three, there was a tremendous amount of anglers back there in day one and day two when we fished full field fishing back there. So I knew that there was the potential to get bit. And, and the conditions were right. You know, sunny, high pressure, no wind. It was the perfect scenario for those fish. And I was fortunate enough to get a few quality bites out of there that day to move me into day four. Day four comes, and I've got to make a decision on what to do. And each day as I come up the river, you know, again, not just looking at something and it looks good. On day two, when I come back up the river for takeoff, which, by the way, is where our takeoff was, was, was way up the river. So when we return each day, we're making this long run back up the lake to return to takeoff. And, you know, we're giving ourselves time to get back. And usually we're five or ten minutes early, sometimes 15. So I was stopping and had five, ten minutes to fish each day. And uh, day two, I, I stopped. And of course, the watercolors very much more stained than anywhere that I've been. And I didn't spend any time up here in practice, but I noticed it's got this grass growing across the bank, you know, where the lake had been low and had risen. And it just looked like spinnerbait water, you know. It looked like, you know, hay grass or spray bloom or, or flooded, you know, hay grass here that you fall in Oklahoma. Things that we catch them out of in the springtime that the fish used to spawn in with that stained water condition, it just fit a spinnerbait. And I picked it up and, and honestly, wasn't thinking about getting too many bites. And, and I did, I caught one. Wasn't a fish that helped me or anything on day two. Day three, I come back up the river, and it was one of the days that I had a little more time. I think I probably had 15 minutes to fish. And uh, same thing, started throwing the spinnerbait. And, and the trick here was was that I idled back in a pocket, and it was a longer pocket up by takeoff, and I went all the way to the back because I was like, everybody stopped up there, everybody fished outside edge, go all the way to the back home. I went all the way to the back and started, and probably my third cast, I hook a three, three-and-a-half-pounder and get all the way to the boat and comes loose. And at the time, that fish could have helped me, and I was pretty upset about it. I continued, and I catch another one that did not help me. And I go on the way in. Neither one of those fish helped me, but what those two fish did was is they gave me the confidence to say, hey, you know, tomorrow is going to be raining, just like it is this afternoon. It was raining at the end of day three, same weather conditions. There are fish up here now. I've had three bites in a very short window. There's some quality largemouth here also. Probably need to stay in the back ends of these pockets. They were pockets that had the creeks that came into them. They weren't dead in pockets. They were definitely pockets that were had running water running into them. And uh, that was kind of the pattern that I tried to follow. Um, I started back where I lost that three and a half pounder the very next morning. I caught a fish from the exact same cast where I lost that three and a half pounder and it weighed three and a half pounds. I believe it was the same fish. I truly do. Do you think that was a spawning fish there at that moment? Actually, I believe that fish was probably a fry garter. The fish looked post-spawn, was thin, and I truly believe that it was post-spawn. And in that morning, I actually thought, you know, this fish yesterday would have probably given me a pound. But today, it's three and a half pounds. 
you know, because it's going to be hard for me to cool this fish. So you're looking at a two pound difference. So maybe, you know, things like that sometimes line up and we get upset, especially when things don't work out. Sometimes we, you know, a little too hard on ourselves, things may work out for the better. That bite alone on day three was huge for me to continue with the confidence on day four to take that spinnerbait. Really kind of pull a trick on the field because, you know, I, you know, going out in boat one, they're all following me down the river every day. And I knew day four whenever I took off and I only ran about two miles from takeoff down the river. And made a left, and Zach Burns and some of the guys behind me, and I knew they were like, where in the world's Holland going? Because they're just following me 20 miles down the lake. <laughs> right. uh, that's kind of a trick, you know, a little fox trick that they have or something, you know, used to pull on us kind of day three or day four of an elite series or um, something like that, you know, years ago when I was younger. But uh, it felt good to be uh, to be the one pulling the old fox trick for once. Right. Where's that guy going? <laughs> that's fantastic well speaking of of kind of how you ended there let's pick up right where you left off and, and dive a little deeper into spinnerbait obviously it's synonymous with oklahoma anglers understanding the pre-spawn situation that is very effective what makes the spinnerbait a good choice in those pre-spawn conditions if you could break down the water temps in which you would kind of make that your go-to in most situations it's not always sufficient so everything's not always 100 always and forever most situations it's water color number um, I think that's why you see Oklahoma anglers throwing it so much because we have the right water color. We throw a blade here that kind of became synonymous in Oklahoma as the Oklahoma blade, and it's basically a sartrice and white spinnerbait with a gold big number five willow, but it's got a red Colorado kicker in front of it. And I own a dozen of them. Brandon actually threw a transfer on the boat that night and tied one on because I was like, this is going to be the spinnerbait that I need to throw on day four. And when I got there and started throwing it, within three casts, I was like, man, that thing is way too loud. You know, there's not as many particles per billion <laughs> in the water here as there is no problem. <laughs> water color number one because, you know, that stain is what allows that big loud, you know, that thing is, is thumping, screaming, flashing in a lot of places, you know, that are clear. It's just too much. So I'd say water color number one. Water temperature is, is also as important as the water so if, as water is cold in the winter and it warms up, I mean, if you think about the things that we catch fish on in colder weather, sartreuse and white spinnerbaits, half ounce, even in clear water, you know, catching big, large mouth, you couldn't catch a fish like that in that same water color in July. And point being, it's just too loud, it's too much, you know, and that time of year we're having to throw a shaky hit to catch that exact same fish. Um, it's positioned the same way. I don't know if it's their eyesight. You know, if, if the cold weather keeps their eyesight to where it's not as good. Um, I think it's more the lateral line issue. I think they feed much more with the lateral line in colder weather, colder water. You see it with the chatterbait, same thing. It's a vibration deal, pre-spawn, spinnerbait, vibration. Um, when we get the stained water in Oklahoma, a lot of times we're using a single Colorado. We had even more water color, and it's the vibration, it's the thump of that single Colorado that really lets that fish hone in and uh, attack that bait. I think the combination of the two, you know, which is something that we have in the majority of our reservoirs in Oklahoma, is probably the reason that you see a lot of us throwing spinnerbaits in the cruise bomb. So you talked a little bit about water temp. If you could break it down for the listeners, I mean, is this something, uh, obviously, it gets cold, a lot different from South Texas, but it gets real cold in that middle section of, of the country. So, you know, you got water temperatures that are in the mid to high 40s. Then, obviously, as spring progresses or you get into that late winter, you get into the 
those 50, 55 degree water temps. Is this something that you're using in January when that water temp is in the high 40s? Or is this something that's really just starting to happen when those temps get into those 50s? And if you could kind of give us a range of how this works as far as, you know, when you're looking at your water temp or your water color, you mentioned as well that, you know, you look at it and you're like, oh, yeah, this is my pre-spawn spinnerbait deal right here. I would say that it's always tied on. Again, it's fishing. It's not always a forever and always, you know, 100% chance something's going to happen. I personally prefer the, the single blade Colorado spinnerbait pre-spawn in anywhere from uh, 50, really 52, somewhere there, to 60. Let's say the ideal range is 52 to 58, but definitely can happen anywhere from 48 to 65 could. But, you know, when you when you start getting up in that higher water temperature, you know, the willow blade, the tandem spinner baits and things are generally going to outperform the single Colorado. As it's colder on the colder side, you know, it's jerk baits and some other things. But the jerk bait's going to play along with the same water temps that the that the single Colorado does. But You're looking at different water I color, I guess, at that point, right? Absolutely. That's going to be the big difference there. And, and also uh, isolated target type situations. You know, if we, if they're laying on way downs and, and things of that nature, it's obviously easier to pull them off the spinnerbait that's more weedless than a jerkbait because we can bring it up through it, drop it, let it fall. Um, a lot of times not even fishing it like a traditional spinnerbait where you just throw it out there, retrieve it, twitch it a couple times. It may even have more of a jig fashion retrieve where you know, you come up over a limb and you let it fall all the way to the bottom and then reel it up over the next limb and let it fall all the way to the bottom. And it's just thump, 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 thump the whole time it's going. Gotcha. Let's talk about that real quick. We're going to go to a quick break after this question. But um, Colorado Blades, Willow Blades, Indiana Blades, you got the Turtle Shell Blades. Uh, gosh, they came out with some Ninja Blades at one point years ago and in the tour. All kinds of spinnerbait blades, right? But your basics, I guess, it looked like at Lanier you were throwing a double Willow. Is that right? That is correct. So that's um, based on water color, I guess. Is Can you just kind of break down your blade selection? Yeah, I know you talked a little bit about the kicker blade, you know, that red Oklahoma blade, but just, you know, kind of fundamentally from the water color to blade selection or speed of retrieve, does that play a big difference as well? Just kind of talk a little bit about your blades and how you want to set that up so you can have your best success. Absolutely. Anytime you get into a situation where you're needing more speed, you know, your willows give you less lift, allow you to bring a spinnerbait at a high rate of speed. Colorados are going to slow you down. Single Colorados, the bigger thumpers, are really slow movers, and they lift on the spinnerbait, meaning they bring the spinnerbait up in the water column as you reel them. So very hard to bring those at high rates of speed. The willows honestly just came from historic. I know from spending a tremendous amount of time at Clark's Hill through the years past, if you fish with those guys that live down there, I don't think they own a Colorado spinnerbait. I don't know if they have a Colorado on any of their spinnerbaits. Everything that comes out of Buckeye Lures is Double Willis. You know, that's a company that's based down there in Blueback country. And when I say Blueback, I'm talking about the herring that live in those lakes. It just seems to be, you know, there they've got clear water. The bait fish they're chasing is a faster bait fish. It's a streamlined bait fish. It's different than the gizzard shad and things that we use here in the Midwest that the fish feed on. So right out of the box, the first spinnerbait that I pulled out was a double willow because of that. That's what I had tied on, just because of the historic history of those blueback herring lakes. And those are the ones that I got bit on. And like I say, day one or day four, I thought, you know, when I'm going spinnerbait fishing, I got this blade tied on. It was very obvious within two or three casts that that thing was just too much. And so I picked the willow back up that I had been bit on and just kept throwing it. And that's kind of why I stayed with it. No doubt that the chatterbait would have probably been, if there's one event I have, 
it would have been following that spinnerbait up with a chatterbait on day four because there's no doubt in my mind that that bait could have caught some quality fish. Great stuff, Brad. Tell you what, we're going to take a short hiatus, come back with more Bass Edge Radio discussing spinnerbait tactics with FLW Tour Pro, Bradley Hallman. Patented in 2000, perfected over years of testing and real-world punishment, the PowerPole is the ultimate shallow-water boat positioning tool. Swift, PowerPole deploys in seconds from anywhere in your boat. Virtually silent, PowerPole won't spook wary fish. Secure in strong currents or gusting winds in up to 8 feet of water. Engineered to take it with a lifetime unconditional replacement guarantee on the spike. PowerPole, swift, silent, secure. Visit PowerPole.com to find a dealer near you. Bass Edge, brought to you in part by ProtectTheHarvest.com, returns with two-time FLW Tour champion Brad Holman in the Lucas Oil Angler Spotlight. That's right, Lucas Oil high-performance marine products from real oils to two-cycle outboard oil that surpasses all manufacturers' requirements. Be sure to visit the BassEdge.com website for the full Lucas Oil lineup. It works. Brad, before the break, we really broke down that pre-spawn spinnerbait. Man, that was a great lesson. Let's move the behavioral patterns up a little bit. So you talked um, a little bit in your tournament there at Lake Lanier that you won. You know, you thought one of your spinnerbait fish was maybe a fry garter. Obviously, that would be post-spawn. But is spinnerbait fishing a good lure choice when the actual spawn is occurring? Is that something you're going to stay with, or can it be a viable presentation? There's no doubt that it is. There's not a doubt in my mind there is. I talk to my friends here at home, and we discuss, you know, some of the giant bags that we've caught in the past, and that they still catch, you know, Lake Eufaula, uh, places that are really stained. Um, you know, a lot of the biggest bags every year are brought in on spinnerbaits. The thought process years ago, and still to this day to a lot of the older guys, is that those fish are pre-spawned, that they're staged. But traveling around the country and seeing fish spawning and uh, clear water situations and the water temperatures that I see them spawning in, there's not a doubt in my mind, the size of fish that are being caught at that time of year, which is like right now, you know, the trees are budded out and the water temperature is 61, 62 degrees. And guys are going back to the backs of these big creeks that are on these reservoirs here in Oklahoma and they have a stained water situation. Those fish are spawning. You just can't see them. Uh, literally, if you were on top of them, you wouldn't be able to see them. But, you know, I'm talking 24, 25, 26-pound bags in Oklahoma, which are really large bags because you're getting the 24, 25 without a six-pounder. You know, you've got five fish that are five, five and a half pounds. Those are spawning females, uh, a lot of them. They're not all pre-spawn. There's a lot of them sitting on beds, and we're actually bringing the spinnerbaits over them. And to actually take a spinnerbait to a clear water reservoir and see a fish on the bed, throw it over the top of it, and catch it, your chances are probably not that great. It sounds very similar to, you know, a circumstance down here at Amistad that we see, which is, you know, instead of throwing a spinnerbait, because we have such a clear water situation, we're throwing swim baits. You know, we're throwing those swim baits up and around the spawning fish. The female is up and around the nest while the male is guarding. And when there's a big bait or something that is very evasive to their little territorial area of where that spawn is happening in this clear water situation, that's when that big female will hit that swim bait. Because of our clear water situation. So I start thinking about that and seeing where your concept is of what happens in Oklahoma. And it's the exact same thing, except you're throwing a spinnerbait in that dirty water situation, but the reaction is exactly the same. Because it's a big bait, something that's really evasive in their territory, those bigger fish, those big females that are up there spawning are actually taking over, trying to keep everything out of their spawning area. And that's why it sounds like you're catching those big spinnerbait fish. So I see it where it goes both ways. 
days in that clear water versus, you know, stained or dirty water situation. That's enlightening and very interesting. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind that's what's happening in a lot of situations. And like I say, you know, we, especially here at home, you know, we've just done it so long. We don't think they're on the bed yet, you know, not until we have to get a bite and miss it and throw up there and it picks it up, moves it, picks it up, moves it. And we're like, ooh, there's a bed fish there, you know, years ago. But just like what you're talking about, you guys get to see it at Armistead in that clear water situation. You actually roll by the fish, see him pull back out, maybe come back an hour later, throw a swim bait across the top of it, and she eats it. You know, we're going down the bank. The fish never knows we're there. We don't know the fish is there, and we're throwing a spinner bait on a long cast, and it comes across the bed. Little male's there. Bait's too big. He doesn't touch it. Comes right by a female, and she kills it. So, Brad, you know, we've spent quite a bit of time pre-spawn and then the spawn. So let's say once the reproduction cycle is, is kind of coming to a halt or has came to a halt, what's the next seasonal condition when you pick up a spinnerbait? Uh, so if we move into summer, usually in the summer we're going to have to have still the same thing. You still have to have water color. Water color and then current. That puts us in the river systems, the Arkansas River. that flows through Oklahoma, Dardanelle through Arkansas. That type of situation, you see spinnerbait still be very productive even in June and July. The higher rate of current that you have, shallower the fish are going to be with the water color being stained, puts them shallow, keeps them active, and they still feed spinnerbait is still a great choice. Moving on into the fall, that's when things start changing with blade sizes. I generally get smaller. I really like the Indiana blades. It's over a Colorado or a willow at that point. It seems like that they like smaller baits. They've been pressured all year. It's just a time of year that they kind of gradually change. I've had some really good tournaments throwing some smaller quarter, three-eighth ounce spinnerbaits with smaller blades. You know, a tandem still, but with the back one being an Indiana blade. Doesn't have the thought, doesn't have the huge flash of the Colorado. It's just not as loud. Still, again, a lot of times on river systems, definitely in places with cooler water as the water temperatures have dropped in places with current really kick it off. Brad, in the spring, right after the spawn, as far as other fish behavioral patterns, obviously we've got the shad spawn. Where's your spinnerbaiting technique come in, in those types of situations? And do you feel like that's a real effective technique when shad are spawning? Secondarily, what would you look for that catches your eye with you know this type of condition that you're going to find these shad and be able to try to put a uh, scenario in place that enables you to capitalize on that. I always have a double wheel and spinnerbait for speed and it's usually a neutral color, you know, like a mouth color or, or a spot remover color, something along those lines. It's very translucent that I can move fast. Always on my deck. I always have it. It's not necessarily always there to catch fish. Now, you can be a good fish catcher. And a lot of that goes back to the same thing, water color, water temperatures. But the main reason I've got it on my deck is if I'm looking for spawning shad, if you throw that spinnerbait, it's the number one lure that they'll show themselves. They will literally hit the blades over continuously. You'll feel them ticking it. And as you reel it in, you'll see a screw of shad with your spinnerbait. A lot of times it's not the best bass catcher. If I continue to throw it a few times, areas that, that have shad spawning, and I feel like that there's bass there, and I continue to throw it, a lot of times there are better baits to catch them, whether it be top water, whether it be a crankbait. There's different things there, moving baits that might be better fish catchers, but there is no bait that's a better shad spawn finder. That's good advice. And one thing I've got to get your thoughts on before we head into the Nitro Boats uh, listener question is concerning the use of a trailer, yes or no. Briefly talk about what your preference is there, and then also trailer hook or no trailer hook. Trailers... I don't use a lot. I use them more so when the water's cold early in the year. I would say that's when I'm using a trailer. My preference would be some type of paddle tail swim bait, something along the lines of uh, like a skinny dipper or something. And that would generally be in the pre-spawn cold weather. 
as the water starts to warm, I'm losing the trailer and I'm throwing a spinnerbait without a trailer the rest of the year. I don't throw one in the summer. I don't throw one in the fall. I don't throw one during the shad spawn. Unless in the fall, potentially, if I had just really heavy, really soupy, muddy water, that would be the only time. So really, the main time that I'm using a trailer is early in the spring, back to what I was talking about. Like their eyesight's not as good whenever the water's cold. A bigger, bulkier bait. And I'm trying to catch good bites from those big pre-spawn females. Trailer hook, for me, honestly, in terms of situations, is 100%. I have times when I have to cut it out of them. Maybe it's so deep and I have to leave the trailer hook in them. And then I have times when, you know, if I'm not throwing that trailer, it's almost a guarantee that I'm going to be missing fish come tournament day, no matter how good they eat the spinnerbait in practice. So a trailer hook is a, is a must for me. It's all the time. I just threw a knot. It's not a very big one. Actually, the one I threw was made by Strike King. It's the one that I've been happy with. It's just a little one-aught hook. It's not that much. But tournament time, 100% for me, trailer hook. Awesome stuff. Brad, this has been an outstanding interview, really great breakdown of spinnerbaiting, but we've got some other questions that we get from our listeners all over the country, and um, here's a good one from Jared Amon. So, the Nitro Boats listener question, Jared, thanks for sending this in. Here's it going to be from Brad Holman. Jared asks, I'm relatively new to fishing. I've kind of been baptized by fire jumping right into local team tournaments with my brother up on the Pearl River. I fish out of the back of the boat, and sometimes I feel like he's catching all the keepers and i'm not contributing what are some ways i can catch more fish from the back of the boat without a doubt if you're new to the sport and you're just getting in you're fishing out of the back of the boat the one thing i'd tell you to do is take a spinning rod eight to ten pound test line and i tie a shaky head on the ball head jig with a worm uh, any type of worm that you want to use from a zoom trick worm some type of finesse worm put it on there and keep it in your hand and you'll see your bites go up dramatically, very likely more so than the guy in the front of the boat. You may not catch the quality, but uh, you're definitely going to get some bites. If you're in a place that's got a lot of grass and you can't get the ball head through, just go to the Senko, just a weightless Senko. You can move up to 12 to 15-pound test line on it and do the same thing and just fish it weightless. But basically just worm fishing. Shake your head catches them year-round. It's a great, it's one of the, it's the number one weapon of uh, co-anglers on tour. Uh, we fish with guys that practically they're professional co-anglers and it is without a doubt their number one tool and it's for a reason. Jared, we appreciate you sending that in and you're one of the very few that can say that their question was answered by a two-time FLW Tour champion. Hey, but we do need one more thing from you and that is contact us. Let us know that you heard your question answered by Brad here on the show. Send us in that mailing address and we will get that gift card sent out to you and you can do so by emailing us support at BassEdge.com or contact us on our website and click the claim your prize section. And as always, a reminder to Bass Edge listeners to send in your question to the show through the website BassEdge.com to have a shot at winning another gift from Bass Edge Radio in the next several months. You may also email us support at BassEdge.com or leave us a comment on our Facebook or Twitter pages. Well, Brad, as always, we are wishing you the best of success for the remainder of the FLW Tour season. Any uh, last thoughts as we kind of wind down? No, that's about it, guys. I think I've covered a lot. (laughs) You're not lying. You've covered a ton, dude. I appreciate you being on the show. I got to send you off, though, with our little segment, Four Last Questions for You. So, Bradley, what's for breakfast, tourney morning? Mountain Dew. (laughs) You'll retire at what lake? Port Aransas, Texas, it will not be a lake. It will be saltwater red fishing. Your favorite tour, Bass or FLW? You know, the guys at Bass were always great to me. The guys at FLW are great to me. Obviously, I've had some really good success here at FLW as of late. I I don't have a preference. I enjoy both of them. Uh, FLW is a good fit for me right now. I'm really happy there. Sooners or Cowboys? 
<laughs> Boomer Sooner, 100%. <laughs> there you go. That's awesome, Brad. Thank you so much for being with us here at Brass Edge Radio. We will return right after these messages. Patented in 2000, perfected over years of testing and real-world punishment, the PowerPole is the ultimate shallow-water boat positioning tool. Swift, PowerPole deploys in seconds from anywhere in your boat. Virtually silent, PowerPole won't spook wary fish. Secure in strong currents or gusting winds in up to 8 feet of water. Engineered to take it with a lifetime unconditional replacement guarantee on the spike. PowerPole, swift, silent, secure. Visit PowerPole.com to find a dealer near you. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. Keel Guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel Guard keel protectors. Certainly happy to have Brad on the show again, and I thought he put on a clinic concerning spinnerbaits, and I really liked his input concerning using trailers, but also trailer hooks. Yes, Aaron, the trailer situation, you know, going with that bigger bait when, you know, he's looking for that bigger profile, specifically in the early spring, then kind of downsizing as the uh, seasons progress, it sounded like. And Brad is one of those Oklahoma anglers that has always been one of the tops in the state, and he's able to take all of these lessons he's learned in Oklahoma and then expand them throughout the United States and really been able to capitalize on that. I think that's an important tip for tournament anglers that are fishing regionally that have a home lake and they start hitting some of these other lakes, taking what is working for you in your home lake and looking for conditions that repeat themselves. Really important. That's how Brad was able to win that Lanier FLW Tour event, kind of finding some new stuff, but yet at the same time, time relying on past experiences to be able to capitalize on what was in front of him conditionally to take the win wire to wire. Yeah, no doubt. And I certainly think that this is going to be one of those episodes that I, at least myself, and I'm sure our listeners will too, will want to go back and listen to, if not again this season, but also earmark it for future seasons because there was so much information in there pertaining to all things spinnerbaiting, just really a home run as we're used to with Brad and quite frankly, all of our Bass Edge guests here on the show. But it is time to close it down as we are absolutely out of time. We will see you next episode, number 278, on Tax Day, April 15th. Be sure to check out all of the information on BassEdge.com and stay abreast of all things Bass Edge through our social media. So long, everybody. For Kurt Dove, I am Aaron Martin. Edge is presented by MegaWare KeelGuard. For more information on Bass Edge or to shop at the Bass Edge online store, visit BassEdge.com and be sure to join Kurt Dove and Aaron Martin right here on another episode of The Edge, brought to you in part by Nitro Boats, Lucas Oil, ProtectTheHarvest.com, Mercury Marine, Lawrence Electronics, PowerPole, and Rapaholic.com.